people using these drugs. So let's focus on the main goal, which is to make sure there's fewer people dying and there's fewer people spreading around serious diseases that wind up at the end of the day costing all of us because they stress the healthcare system. And that's all it does. It doesn't say, it doesn't, it doesn't endorse this behavior. It just, and, and the other part of it is it, it, it expresses unconditional concern for these people. The people in the harm reduction community say, you know, an, an IV drug user living on the street is a human being and somebody's son or daughter, and they matter to me. Hello, friends, and welcome. This is the Happy Warrior Podcast, fresh takes on the most important and little-known stories of the day, hosted by the Happy Warrior Substacks and everyone's favorite conservatarian journo and disabled otaku, Pete Pishke. Hello and welcome everyone. This is the Happy Warrior Podcast and I am your host, Peter Pishke. Today I have the pleasure of having the wonderful expert on many things in health policy and harm reduction, among others, Dr. Jeffrey Singer. He is a general surgeon and the senior fellow at the Cato Institute, president emeritus and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics, LTD, the largest and oldest private surgical practice in Arizona, and has been in private practice as a general surgeon for more than 35 years. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Singer, for being with us here today. Um, Happy to be here. So, Dr. Singer, uh, you... Uh, just put out an article with the New York Daily News with uh, Dr. Josh Bloom. Um, yeah. You write sp a lot specifically about the harm reduction issue and what's going on with chronic pain. So that's what we're hoping to get into here today. Biden crack pipe story, because so, I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of normies that haven't paid attention to the issue of harm reduction before, I think now jumping in, they're seeing all this. Some of them are okay with it. Many don't like it. Uh, what, what what's going on? What what happened here with this story, and why are people reacting the way they are? Well, you know, I I really think it was uh, from the standpoint of messaging and public relations, it was really a dumb move by uh, people who've joined the administration who actually have been encouraging the, the new drugs are Dr. Gupta happens to be a big advocate of harm reduction, which is a good thing, but um, they allowed. Uh, the, this uh, uh, introduction of crack pipes uh, into the discussion, which was just, you know, setting up uh, an attack by a whole bunch of opponents of uh, harm reduction. It, it was just a, a bad thing to throw out there. And it, 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 it helped to set back possibly the arguments that have been gaining ground. Um, so I just think it was a, you know, a public relations disaster. And it was also beside the point, because I got to tell you, uh, most of the people who are involved in the harm reduction movement are focusing on things like clean needles and syringes so that people don't spread HIV and hepatitis. There's an epidemic of HIV now again because of people sharing needles. Uh, they focus on things like distributing um, fentanyl test strips and other testing equipment so that when people purchase these drugs on the black market, which they have no choice to do because they're prohibited, uh, they could test to see if they're laced with things like fentanyl, which could cause them to have an overdose death. Uh, that's part of harm reduction. Uh, part of harm reduction are things like uh, 
uh, safe consumption sites where uh, people uh, can can use their drugs with with clinical personnel standing close by to save their lives if they overdose, and also um, to, to give them a clean needle and syringe and then take it back when they're done so it doesn't get shared out on the street. Those are the harm reduction measures that most people focus on or things like you know medication-assisted treatment with methadone or buprenorphine. Um, this, uh, there are people who have advocated um, handing out clean crack pipes. Mo most people who smoke crack either you know, make their own crack pipes out of aluminum foil, or they buy these glass tubes to use. And it's true, there is, uh, if, if they're not clean, you can get mouth sores, which become infections, which gets you to go to the emergency room and cost the healthcare system money and things like that. But that is such um, sort of a peripheral, almost minor uh, component of the harm reduction uh, uh, strategy school that it would just by allowing that to to be out there for critics to see just allowed the critics to focus on all of that and make harm reduction look silly and uh you know i don't know what they were thinking but they obviously should have consulted their communications team before they did that um and of course they they turned around and said we're not going to give out any money to purchase crack pipes um and i would like to say as a libertarian i think it's important to mention that advocating harm reduction doesn't mean you're advocating taxpayers being forced to pay for other people's uh, lifestyle choices. Most harm reduction organizations, I, I, I live in Arizona, and just recently, uh, needle exchange programs were made explicitly legal in the state in May of 2021, actually. Up until then, they were illegal. And but nevertheless, uh, at least seven of them have been existing in this state and functioning pretty well for about 10 years. The only problem was since they're illegal, they had to rely on police looking the other way when they would show up in, in communities where there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of IV drug users usually coming around in vans and, and uh, doing their exchanging because uh, it's against the law. And fortunately, most law enforcement actually supports this. They don't like the idea of getting accidentally stuck with a needle that's contaminated with HIV or hepatitis when they're trying to rescue an overdose victim. So they, they most of them support it, but you still, you have to rely on their looking the other way and you'd much rather have, you know, legitimate sanction. So now that they're legal, uh, they, they were functioning completely on private funding because they're illegal. Now they could do things like establish uh, uh, an actual permanent location, perhaps in a strip shopping center close to in, in an area where there's a lot of IV drug use. They can maybe have publicly announced fundraising events to raise funds. Uh, another example of harm reduction uh, that's come under a lot of criticism from, you know, from the usual suspects is safe consumption sites. I hear all the time uh, these teasers on the news, uh, you know, saying there are groups of people who want to actually have you come inside and shoot up heroin indoors and give you the needle to do it. Details after these words from our sponsors. And that's the teaser. And they talk about it like it's something, you know, crazy. Well, the fact is that what's called a safe consumption site is the same as needle exchange, except it's amped up to work even better. Because when you're exchanging a needle and uh, syringe with a, an IV drug user, you, know, you give them a clean needle and syringe, uh, they go out and they use it. And then sometimes they share it with others. Sometimes they sell it if they need to, because they're running short of cash to buy the illicit drugs. 
Um, whereas when you have a safe consumption site, uh, you hear people always on, uh, uh, particularly on conservative news stations, complaining about, you know, witnessing people on the streets of San Francisco or Philadelphia or elsewhere, injecting right in front of their families. Well, a safe consumption site brings them inside. Most of these people who need safe consumption sites don't have a place to live. They bring them inside. Um, they give them a clean needle and syringe. Uh, they give them equipment to test whatever it is they're about to inject to make sure it doesn't contain, like if they think they're injecting heroin, it turns out it's 50% fentanyl. That's something they should know because they got to make it either not use it or make an adjustment and how much they're going to use because they're going to overdose. And, uh, and then after, and, and while they're using it, there's somebody standing close by with the overdose naloxone to rescue them if they overdose. So you don't have to call 911 and have paramedics show up. And then after they finish injecting, they make them sit down in what they call a, a chill room, a chill out room, so that they don't just go right out on the street after they, they get that initial rush, they get a chance to kind of adjust uh, and, and, and hang out for a while. And while they're hanging out for a while, they, they're getting talked to by people who, can, who unconditionally care about them uh, and for many of these people, this is the first time anybody seemed to care about them in a long time or wanted to talk to them or, or wanted to even know what they think about things because they're used to seeing people walk on the other side of the street when they see them. Uh, and, and they offer them a place to shower. And even if they want to stay for a while, there's a, you know, bunk beds. That's what a safe injection site is. So it's bringing them out of this, the sight of people who don't want to see this at the same time. Oh, oh and, and then when they're done injecting, they take the needle and syringe back from them. So it doesn't get out on the street where it could be shared with others or sold. And they tell them, look, if you need to use again today, you could just come back. We'll give you another clean one. Don't worry about that. But we take it back when we're done. Just intuitively, you would think, well, that should be even more effective in reducing overdose deaths and the spread of disease than needle exchange programs. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that. They've been around since the late 1980s. Uh, they're very common in Germany, Switzerland, actually most of Europe. Uh, there are 38 of them now in Canada. They're in Australia. In fact, we're an outlier. When it comes to the developed world, we're an outlier because we have a federal statute that's referred to as the crack house statute. That's, uh, in the, uh, it's a law that says it's against the law to knowingly permit the use uh, of or the production or use of illicit drugs, controlled substances on your premises. So they're illegal here. So for example, you had a group in Philadelphia, uh, they called themselves Safe House, completely privately funded. Uh, the uh, one, one of the major donors was a, was a developer in the city whose son died from a heroin overdose. He donated a large amount of money and he actually donated the building in, 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 the, in, the, in the Kensington district of Philadelphia where there's a lot of Ivy drug users. And um, completely, like I say, completely privately funded. And um, among the principals organizing it is former Philadelphia mayor and Pennsylvania governor, Ed Rendell. Uh, and uh, they announced that they wanted to have this, they called it safe house. Well, uh, a couple of years ago, when in, in the previous administration, uh, the, the attorney general Rosen, Rosenstein said, if you do that, we're coming after you. And so it's been tied up in the courts and been unable, uh, unable to get going. So a lot of people think, I don't want my tax dollars going to help people use illegal drugs. Well, it doesn't have to require your tax dollars to go use illegal drugs. The bottom line is what we need to do is remove the government obstacles that are in a way of people who want to help people who are using drugs 
to, to prevent them from dying, to prevent them from spreading disease. And there's an added benefit too. This isn't the, the primary goal of things like safe consumption sites or, or needle exchange programs, it's, it, but it's a bonus, which is you see what, what, what animates the harm reduction movement is, is realism. Uh, and it's, it's very analogous. You know how many of us are, are upset how uh, when it comes to the pandemic, every, there is the zero COVID mentality where we will not, we'll keep everything locked down. Everybody's wearing masks until we see no more COVID. And many of us, myself included, are saying, that's a fool's errand. You're never going to see no more COVID. COVID's here to stay. Learn to live with it and practice harm reduction. Protect the people that need the most protecting and the, and the people who don't need as much protecting. Go about your business and just, you know, there's certain safety measures you could practice to reduce your chances of, of catching it. Well, it's the same thing when it comes to drug prohibition. So the harm reduction advocates are saying, look, you're never going to have a drug-free society. There's never been such a thing in human history. Some of these drugs have been used recreationally going back to antiquity. I mean, Homer wrote about opium. And um, it, so if you think that you could have zero tolerance of drug use, then you could just continuing, you're going to continue to spend billions and billions, trillions of dollars trying to stop it unsuccessfully. And, you know, they keep saying, well, are they coming through our border? If you think you could stop it from coming through the border, then maybe you could figure out, you could explain to me why you can't stop it from getting into prisons, which have four walls around them, not just one. So the, it, it's, it's accepting the fact that there are always going to be people using these drugs. So let's focus on the main goal, which is to make sure there's fewer people dying and there's fewer people spreading around serious diseases that wind up at the end of the day costing all of us because they stress the healthcare system. And that's all it does. It doesn't say it doesn't it doesn't endorse this behavior. It just and, and the other part of it is it. It expresses unconditional concern for these people. The people in the harm reduction community say, you know, an IV drug user living on the street is a human being and somebody's son or daughter, and they matter to me. And so I want, I want to, to decrease their chances of dying. So I'm going to help them do whatever they choose to do in a safer way. Now, the bonus is that when they suddenly see that these people, there's no, there's no strings attached. They unconditionally are caring for them. We've learned over the years that a large number of these people end up starting to feel like they could trust talking to these people and they open up. And a lot of them are brought in to rehab and have their lives turn around. Some of them end up becoming people who work in these harm reduction uh, organizations to try to help others because they've been there and they know what it's like. But, and that, that's an added benefit because, uh, the part of overcoming substance use disorder is, is connection. It's very important. And, and, and so that's just, I mean, that's not the main reason that they're doing this. They're not doing this to, to fight drug addiction. They're doing this to save lives. But an, an added benefit is seems to also bring a number of people into rehab that otherwise would have been lost to that. Thank you for, for sharing all that. I, I, I agree. I think part of the problem with harm reduction is a lot of people feel that or they've been led to believe that it's a movement that's about condoning drug use. And there are probably people who, I know there are people who are in harm reduction that maybe have a view where a recreational drug use should be a tolerate behavior. I mean, the same way that alcohol is, which is a recreational drug. Um, I'm one of them, by the way. I think it should be a tolerated behavior. I okay. think alcohol is a lot more dangerous than an opioid. The only thing that makes opioids dangerous 
is that they're illegal. So when you purchase an opioid on the street, you have to purchase a dirty needle to inject it with. If, you, if you're talking about like a heroin, for example, and you have to, and since it's in a black market, you have no idea what's in it. When I go to the store to buy a bottle of bourbon, that's my favorite legal drug. Uh, I happen to enjoy bourbon. And if I see it says, uh, you know, 48% alcohol, it never even crosses my mind that they may be lying to me, that it may be 80% alcohol. I never think, oh, I wonder if it has fentanyl in it. And I, maybe I should test it to make sure. And that's because it's legal. It's regulated. There's quality control. There's accountability. There's many different ways to, to and there's competition also with other legal producers. And so I go to a legal drug dealer. It's called Total Wine. And this drug dealer sells me this legal drug, alcohol. Um, and, and, and so I happen to be one of those people. But being a harm reduction advocate doesn't necessarily mean that you are one of those people. And I'm also a practicing physician. And the concept of harm reduction comes easily to practicing physicians, particularly in, in, in affluent societies like the United States. Because when you think about it, the great majority of things that we do in medical practice is harm reduction. So for example, when, when a doctor has an overweight patient who doesn't get enough exercise, eats the wrong foods and smokes, and now he's, he's developed high blood pressure and high cholesterol and early diet, borderline diabetes. And the doctor knows if I could get this person to just lose some weight, go on a better diet um, and maybe give up smoking, I could, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have to put this patient on any medications at all. And I could, it, this person's life would, would be under much less risk. But I can't get this person to do that because this person's, this for whatever reason, either the person's enjoying living that way or the person can't, you know, feels that he or she can't, uh, you know, comply with a, a diet and exercise program and giving up smoking. So what do I do? So I prescribe something for their high blood pressure. I, I prescribe something to lower their cholesterol, like a statin drug. I prescribe something like a metformin to keep their blood sugar under better control. I'm practicing harm reduction, right? I'm not, in, I'm not condoning that their lifestyle choice, but I'm being realistic enough to know that this person's unable to comply with my recommendations as to what lifestyle choice this person should make. So let me do what I can on my end to at least reduce the risk of harm that this person's lifestyle decisions are, are bringing on that person. That's harm reduction. It's the same thing. No, but my point is, and I know you're one of those those terrible, dirty libertarians that are just permissive about everything. And they they what's the old saying about um, you know someone out there is getting pleasure from this, and that bothers someone. Yeah, it was uh, Mencken, I think, who said that definition of a Puritan is the is someone who believes that someone out there might be actually having a good time. But the organi <laughs> the organizing principle here. Um, is about it's just about it's about saving lives. It's getting people to live longer, to make better choices. Mm -hmm. Right. It's understanding that you know there's human nature, and the I think I I've, I'm writing about this right now. Part of the problem is is that people don't understand that the options that are considered the traditional options. If you have someone that's struggling with an addiction, twelve step uh, rehab, maybe forced rehab. That those methods have a very low efficacy rate, much lower mm -hmm. than most of the populace understands. And so if you're trying to, if, you're, if your goal is to try to get someone that's in the throes of addiction or you know is going to engage in drug use and you, wa you want them to live, uh, this is the way to go. And, I, and it's interesting to me, it's become such a partisan issue because honestly, uh, 
it really doesn't have to be. And in fact, I think there's a lot in say, um, you know, I used to be more like this conservative in that worldview that says, okay, we understand that there are limitations to human nature and so that'd be okay. Why do you think harm reduction continues to be such, uh, such a, a partisan lodestone? Does it have to be I, that way? I think it's becoming less partisan. I, I, I'm working on, you know, in this area and more and more it's, uh, like here in my state of Arizona, which is a, you know, a conservative Republican state. Um, and it was a conservative Republican uh, uh, senator, chair of a committee, who introduced the bill to legalize needle exchanges and to legalize distribution of fentanyl test strips last year. Uh, we're starting to see, I think more and more uh, people of both parties are coming around to the idea that, you know, doubling down on the same things that haven't worked for the last 51 years, which is the second war on drugs. You know, Nixon declared this. This is drug war two. The first war on drugs occurred in the 1920s after the Harrison Narcotics Act. Um, but but um, it's not working. And they realize that. And now we're starting to see as drug use has become more widespread. You see, in the early days, in the, in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I think a lot of people thought that the most of the people who are using drugs on the black market illegally are sort of the other people, you know, they're not, they're not us. They were sort of marginalized groups, minorities. Uh, but in, you know, as the 21st century began, we started seeing a lot of people with substance use disorder who are white middle-class families, you know, and now it's kind of hard to run into someone who doesn't have a friend or relative or know someone who's had substance use disorder. So now I think everybody's, that's one of the reasons why everybody's so acutely aware of this problem. And, um, and I think maybe that's fueling a little bit more of a compassion where it used to be, if you use these drugs, you were a bad person. This was a vice. And if you die from an overdose, you had it coming. Now, you know, well, wait a second. That's my cousin. That's my brother. That, and, and we're starting to see that. And I think that's making everybody sort of overcome these biases and the stigma that's been attached to, to, to using these drugs is starting to go away a little bit. And, and that's why I don't, I don't think this, I think this is gradually becoming a bipartisan issue. And the other thing is, I think it's important, you know, the way we're talking, using illicit drugs that obtained on a black market for recreational use does not equal drug addiction. And that's a tendency we hear, you know, all these drug addicts. No, in fact, the science shows and we had a conference about this yesterday, and one of our speakers, the day before yesterday, Dr. Carl Hart, he's done a lot of research in this area. 80 to 90% of people who use illicit drugs as adults never become addicted. Uh, they, Of course, they're afraid to come public about this because they'll go to jail, but huge numbers of the population uh, engage you know, a couple times a week in using some of these illicit substances. Almost everyone who developed substance use disorder began using these drugs when they were in their adolescence, uh, where they haven't had full development of their front, frontal lobe, which has all these executive functions. And, uh, and it, it seems that when you start young, you're, you're more prone to develop substance use disorder. But when you're fully mature, if you decide to and I'm not going, don't take this as that I'm saying to people go out and do this. But there are many people who are, you know, in their 30s who go to a party and somebody says, hey, you want to try smoking some heroin? This will give you a great feeling. And they'll do it and they may enjoy it. And they may end up doing it every couple of weeks with some friends and they don't get addicted. 
Uh, that's just a fact. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research on that. Um, and, and so there's another thing is we tend to uh, equate using drugs recreationally that are illegal with being addicted. No, they're not. Only a small percentage of these people become addicted. Addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. And probably the addiction that we're, and it doesn't have to be a substance. Is gambling addiction? We know what that could have negative consequences and you still can't control yourself. There's shopping addiction, there's sex addiction. And with substances, the most common addiction is alcohol addiction. So we know what that means. Your life is, you know, your, your marriage broke up, you lost your job, you're living in a flop house, you can't find work and you know you just need to get help because it's all related to your drinking. Uh, and, uh, ju and just when you decided, okay, I'm gonna go get help, all of a sudden you, you feel compelled. Well, maybe tomorrow I'll get help. I, I need to have this drink right now. And what we're coming to learn is it's, it's, it's a beha compulsive be behavioral disorder where certain triggers trigger you to go to this behavior because the behavior almost becomes sort of like an automatized safe place for you to go to. So um, we've come over the years to look at people we know who have alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction, we've, we've come to look at them compassionately as people like us who happen to have a problem. But we still don't have that attitude towards people who use these this drugs on a disapproved list, which is basically all that amounts to. So that's an important point to make. Well, okay, so this is a good this is a good place to flip over to the other the other um, topic of interest and wanting to get through with you because it it seems to me that pain medications specifically um, prescription uh, opioid medications like oxycontin, hydrocodone, uh, and all the rest that they've kind of entered um, this stigma of almost not quite but almost illicit drug use. I, I hear this more and more from people who if they have a family member, I and mean, this was always sort of around, but more and more I hear from people who say they have this family member and oh they're all they're on their medication all the time and they're hardly functioning and you know it's the doctor's fault. How do we how do we flip back on pain medication and what's happening here? You've been paying attention to this issue far earlier than most people. So um, you're one of the great go-to experts at following up what's happened to pain patients over these last. Uh, well, more than that, actually. Well, what, again, let's get to the science, okay? Uh, the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health published a study in 2018 showing the overdose rate has been on a steady exponential increase since at least the late 1970s. That's the data they were able to go back as far as. And the Joint Economic Committee actually issued a report in 2019 showing actually it's been increasing steadily since 1959. So uh, back in, when I was a medical student and in my early days of my medical practice, we were taught, this is in you know, the earlier days of the war on drugs, we were taught you know, these are bad and dangerous drugs and we underprescribed. And we, I remember making rounds on my post-op patients in the hospital and they were obviously miserable, hyperventilating, rapid pulse, sweating. And I say to my patient, um, you know, I have morphine on order. Just let the nurse know. No, no, no. I don't want to get addicted. Uh, well, you're not going to get addicted. This is what it's for. It treats your pain. Um, so both the patients and the doctors had been kind of uh, uh, indoctrinated into looking at these as dangerous drugs. The fact is, and this is undisputable, even Dr. Nora Valko, who's the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2016, these drugs actually, when we understand addiction as opposed to dependency, a dependency is when you've been on the drug for a long time and if you withdraw it, you can go into a, a reaction. 
lots of drugs, opioids are among them, but lots of drugs, uh, anti-epileptics, uh, antidepressants, beta blockers for high blood pressure. If you withdraw them suddenly, you could die from a withdrawal reaction from a beta blocker. Nobody says, nobody would say they're addicted to a beta blocker. Like I said, addiction is compulsive use despite negative consequences. So that if you've completely been so-called detoxed from opioids, but you feel them calling to you that you need to go back, that's addiction as opposed to being dependent. So finally, by the in the 80s and 90s, lots of research came out saying, look, these have low addictive potential. Dr. Nora Valko says they're extremely uncommon in chronic pain patients, even, quote, in her words, even those with pre-existing vulnerabilities. And they have a very low overdose rate. In fact, uh, the, the overdose rate from numerous studies is anywhere from 0.04% to 0.02%. And the addiction rate is in the 1% one, one to 5% range, okay, depending on which study you read addiction as truly defined, okay? So they, we were being told, we doctors, you know, loosen up a little bit. You're making your patients suffer unnecessarily. So we began to loosen up in the 80s, actually, not, not just now. Uh, and then uh, patients also began to overcome their fear of using them. By the late 90s and into the early 2000s, now remember, this, this overdose death rate curve is still been on a steady incline, okay? So it was going up before OxyContin was even approved by the FDA in 1996. Well, then as more and more people were using opioids and more and more doctors were prescribing them liberally, and you know, some doctors may prescribe them too liberally. I'm not saying they're all angels. So some doctors I know prescribe antibiotics too liberally. That's become a problem, you know, with spread making making uh, organisms develop resistance to antibiotics. Some doctors prescribe antihypertensive agents more li too liberally. So, you know, every doctor is different, but generally speaking, as it got prescribed more liberally, the more drugs that were being prescribed, the more drugs became available to be what they call diverted into the black market for people who are recreational users. So recreational users started moving like in the seventies, the, the most popular opioid was heroin and the eighties heroin. In the early nineties, it was Vicodin and, 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 and Percocet. Uh, by the late 90s, early 2000s, it was OxyContin because OxyContin is concentrated Percocet, basically. Ox it's concentrated oxycodone. So if you crush an OxyContin pill and snort it, you get a lot more concentrated oxycodone than from just a Percocet pill. And so that became popular. Um, the People think that the doctors hooked these patients and they became drug addicts. That's not so. Most of these, these were non-medical users who chose to use uh, diverted prescription pain pills. Uh, and you know what? That was a wise choice because if somebody came up to me and told me, doc, I'm going to, I'm going to use an opioid tonight recreationally. You can't stop me. Now I got a choice. I have this bottle of pills I stole from my grandmother's medicine cabinet. It says Oxycontin, uh, you know, 30 milligrams. I also have this bag I bought from a guy on the street. He tells me it's heroin. He says it's pure heroin, which should I use? I'm going to use one. I'd say to him, well, if you're going to use one, use the Oxycontin because I know exactly what it is. If it says 30 milligrams, it's 30 milligrams. It's not laced with fentanyl. It's because it's legal. Okay. So that, that was a wise choice. Most of these recreational users and, and was really rampant in college dorms were using pain pills because they were, they knew what they were. It's a lot safer than using something you bought from a guy on the street. Uh, I actually published research in the Journal of Pain Research with, some, with Jacob Solomon and Michael Shatman. We looked at the data from the CDC and from National Survey on Drug Use and Health, which is conducted by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Uh, from 2002, the first year they took the survey, to present, 
past month's non-medical use of prescription pain relievers by persons aged 12 and up has basically been unchanged since 2002. And past year diagnosed with pain reliever use disorder, persons 12 and up, also straight line. And if you look at the also data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the percentage of the population with prescription pain reliever addiction, heroin addiction, alcohol addiction has relative, been relatively the same percentage since they started taking the survey. So what's happened is that, uh, that we have, uh, you know, as our population has grown, a growing number of people have engaged in non-medical recreational use of drugs. Uh, and by the early 2000s, their drug of choice was diverted prescription pain pills. When policymakers wanted somebody to blame rather than drug prohibition, they blamed the drug manufacturers. They started making doctors clamp down on prescribing. Prescribing is down now 60%. So from 2002 to present, like I say, the non-medical use has been the same. But during that same time, prescriptions volume, prescriptions per 100 population first doubled, and now it's come down 60%. But that number of non-medical uses stayed the same. So there's no correlation between the number of prescriptions we write and the percentage of people who are non-medical users. But as we cut down on the percentage of, uh, as on the number of prescriptions, that is fewer pain pills available to be diverted into the black market. So the people who wanted to use them instead got the next thing available, which at first was heroin. And now in recent years is heroin laced with fentanyl and fentanyl. And there's still people, meanwhile, pain patients have been cut off from pain medicine that was allowing them to go to work and have a life. And they may have been on pain medicine. So if, if you've been on Oxycontin 30 milligrams twice a day for 10 years, and it's allowed you to work and, and have a, a decent life with your friends and family, yes, you are dependent on that. That doesn't mean you're addicted, but you're dependent. So if somebody took you off of it abruptly, you will go into withdrawal. That doesn't mean you're addicted. It just means you're dependent and it's doing its job. So what's so terrible about that? If if I have somebody on a beta blocker for high blood pressure and it's keeping their blood pressure in a good range and they've been on it for seven consecutive years, that same dose and their blood pressure is fine, they are dependent on that beta blocker. If I stop their beta blocker abruptly, they can get a stroke or a heart attack and die, okay? So do I say, well, you've been on this beta block, you've been dependent on this for too long, I gotta get you off it? No, it's doing its job, it's doing as intended. So why do I say you've been on this opioid for too long, I gotta get you off it when it's been doing its job. So we've taken all of these pain patients who are getting a benefit from this and taking them off of it. And some of them are getting desperate. They're trying to purchase it on the black market. But what we're seeing is a, as fentanyl is coming into this country, uh, dealers who have these pill presses and they're pressing fentanyl powder into counterfeit prescription pain pills. And so people are buying what they think are prescription pain pills and they're overdosing because it's potent fentanyl. In fact, that's how Prince died. We now have the final you know, autopsy report. He was a recreational user of Vicodin. He liked Vicodin. Uh, he never once went to a doctor according to records. Uh, he had a dealer who got him Vicodin. And one day his dealer thought he was getting him Vicodin, turns out it was counterfeit and it was made of fentanyl. And he died of a fentanyl overdose from swallowing what he thought were Vicodin pills. So we're seeing that happen. And meanwhile, the, the, the recreational users, since prescription pain pills are less available, they've just moved over to these other more dangerous drugs. So our, our opioid policy is at the same time that it's punishing patients in pain and making them miserable, it's, it, it's done nothing to stop people who are non-medical users of drugs obtained in the black market. It's just making sure that the drugs they get in the black market are the more dangerous ones. So that that 
that that hypothetical patient I described a little earlier can't come over to me and say, Doc, I'm going to be using one of these two tonight. Which one should I use? Because the doc, he's going to say, Doc, I got this bag of heroin and I got this bag of heroin. One of them might have fentanyl. In it. I'm going to use one. Which should I use? That's what it's like now. So the drug policies is doing exactly the wrong thing. It's it's harming people who could benefit from opioids, and it's 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 driving recreational users to more dangerous drugs. So we're driving up the death rate while we're making pe people in pain suffer. It's it, it couldn't get more irrational. No, in so many ways, it's the the worst possible um, list of choices they could have made if they were trying to tackle either drug abuse or trying to meet the needs of. Of patients, you bring up. I think that's a good point you bring in that rarely gets discussed. Is that when we see statistics or things that say that people were abusing prescription drugs? I mean, there's lots of evidence, and I've gone through it before. It says that the, the, the people that were getting into this, this wasn't their moment. They started to become a dr casual drug user or, or struggling with an addiction. They almost there was almost always something prior to it. And even when they used a prescription drug, it was caught up with some other substances. But right. you bring another point here is we're, but we're still assuming that there is this um, doctor drug user connection when you're saying that a lot of times people people are smart and so they're gonna make rational choices. They understand it and, and uh, taking the, the pills from grandma's pillbox for them, they think that is the safer option. I, I that's that's a good point. That that's a good yeah. point. There is a false correlation there being made, and that probably needs to be brought up a lot more. Yeah, but I I don't want to sweep under the rug though that there were definitely doctors as this as it became obvious that this is a popular drug for recreational use. There were doctors who were unscrupulous who were operating what's called pill mills. I mean, there was a thing called the Oxy Express where. Uh, drug dealers would fly people down from New York to Florida where there are these doctors operating these pain clinics that were just covers for drug dealing. They were using their medical degree as a cover. And they would be, you know, they'd be, these people would be flown down, given all sorts of perks, you know, gift cards, et cetera, and told, go to this clinic, tell these things to this doctor. He'll give you a prescription for 500 oxycodone. Then go over to this particular pharmacy and make sure you get this pharmacist. He'll fill it, then bring it to me and I'll give you X amount of dollars. And so you had this, and these things were, of course, were law enforcement rolled them up. But, but I would say that, again, these were people who were, who were basically uh, recreational users. Some might have had addiction, but they were non-medical users who kind of word got around. Uh, if you go to this doctor, you'll get what you want. And if, if these doctors didn't create the people with substance use disorder. Uh, and if you want to blame anybody, of course, these doctors violated the law and, and therefore deserve to be punished. But if you want to blame, the ultimate blame rests with drug prohibition, because it's, that's what made that the lure of easy money that's provided by things being prohibited is what corrupted those doctors. Drug prohibition corrupts doctors, it corrupts police, it corrupts politicians, it corrupts prosecutors. We all know that. Anybody who's watched any of these, you know, crime uh, stories, you know, uh, whether you're dealing with, you know, mafia stories or, or more modern time stories, you know, there are police on the take, they get a cut. That's what prohibition does at the end of the day. There was a doctor who was arrested in Newport Beach, California, for going on certain times a day, he would go to the Starbucks and sell Oxycontin prescriptions for $600 a piece. So you got to think I could work long hours in my office 
and see patients and do physical diagnosis and all that kind of stuff and get paid maybe $120 for, you know, for a half hour work, or I could get $600 a pop for selling prescriptions because prohibition makes those prescriptions like gold. So at the end of the day, I'm not excusing those doctors, but, but the real ultimate blame rests with prohibition that would get that stuff to go away. Well, and, and that's a good point because when the 2016 CDC guidelines comes out, and the the C, and we've talked about this extensively, but for those who aren't aware, the 2016 CDC guidelines were an attempt by the CDC to to tamper down prescribing, and they did so with a I would I almost would say draconian in some parts uh, measure of the guidelines that that put on hard limits for prescribing and all kinds of things in pain medicine, not just chronic pain care but also acute care. And they've since tried to correct it, but even then we've seen a, a lot of issues there. Uh, can we talk a little bit about what the 2016 CC guidelines, what the CC got wrong? And do you see any positives in these new guidelines or do you think we're making all the same mistakes? What's going on there? Okay, well, the this 2016 guidelines came under a lot of criticism. First of all, they themselves, if you read them, they said that most of their recommendations were based on what they described as type four evidence which is the weakest possible evidence, mostly anecdotal, objective, uh, 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 observational reports, not randomized controlled trials, or if there were any trials, they were, had, in their words, severe limitations. So, and they also said, don't take this as dogma. You use this as a loose rule of thumb. And then they went and they said, in most cases, you shouldn't exceed you know, 50 morphine milligram equivalents of an opioid, I'll get into that in a minute, of opioid a day, uh, definitely not 90, and, and they said, most people don't need more than this. But they also said, this is not meant to be taken as dogma. Well, first of all, most many biochemists and pharmacologists immediately uh, uh, criticized even their recommendations because, for example, any pharmacologist will tell you, you, there's no such thing as a morphine milligram equivalent because different people have genetically determined enzyme systems. Each one's different. So different people metabolize opioids differently. Different opioids get have different half-lives, different what they call bioavailability, like some opioids get absorbed more rapidly from the intestines than others, whether you get it intravenously or you smoke it or you or take it orally, it all depends. Um, depends on your kidney function, depends on what other drugs you're taking. Uh, they could affect the metabolism of your opioids. So the idea that you could have a, 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 a equi-analgesic conversion table, which is what they call it, that makes no scientific sense. I just wrote an article with my colleague, Josh Bloom, who's a, a pharmacologist and biochemist, and he's uh, senior vice president of the American Council on Science and Health, where we dug into this and we found, and actually we were, we were tipped off to this by Dr. Nabarin Dasgupta, who is at the University of North Carolina School of Public Health. These tables weren't even based upon like toxicological studies where, you know, what dose causes respiratory depression or whatever. They were based on 50 and 60 year old studies that were clinical trials where people were asked to give their subjective pain scores after receiving one pill versus another. And that somehow became these conversion tables. So it's, it's even worse than not making sense on a pharmacologic or biologic biochemical level. It's just cobbled together uh, anecdotal reports, basically. So it's really bad. Well, but the problem is that after they said that most politicians immediately said, even though the CDC said, don't just take this as a loose rule of thumb, politicians read that and said, oh, well, that's the answer then. Let's pass a law. You can't have more than 90 morphine milligram equivalents a day, or you can't have more than five days worth of prescription pain pills after an operation. So they took all of 
these recommendations that they said are based on type four evidence and should be taken only as a rough guide and they made them law, okay? And then the health insurance companies latched on to that as well. I said, oh, well, if, if the CDC is suggesting it, it's just like now, you know, the CDC is suggesting you wear masks even if you're two years old in a classroom, even though the World Health Organization says you shouldn't wear a mask under age six, but that doesn't matter. Now you have an excuse to say, I will follow what the CDC says. So the health insurance companies started following that. So then even pharmacy, pharmacies started doing it. And you can understand if, that, that this suddenly, this loose recommendation suddenly became dogma. And it reached the point where the American Medical Association issued a complaint saying you should never have rigid rules as to how much of a dose of anything needs to be prescribed because individuals are different. And finally, the CDC in 2019 said, whoa, 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 we never meant you guys to do this. Well, it's a little late now. So they promised to revise their guidelines. Now, looking at their, they, they, they are receiving comments now. By the end of this year, they're going to have a new list of guidelines out, and they wanted us to comment on their first draft. So the good news about their first draft is they spent a great deal of time emphasizing please don't put this into law. This is not meant in any way to be a, a rigid recommendation. These are not meant to be hard cutoffs as to doses. We're just sharing with you information that can help you. That's, so they said all the right things. But then they went and said, pretty much they stuck to these junk science conversion tables. And they said, you should start being cautious when you exceed 50 morphine milligram equivalents of any opioid drug in a given day. Like I say, morphine is usually given intravenously. You could take it orally, but it's usually given intravenously. So when you say uh, five milligrams of oxycodone equals one milligram of morphine, uh, one milligram of morphine, how? Intravenously? Orally? What are you saying? Or you're just telling us that it depends, doesn't it depend how you get it? You know, if you get in your veins, it works differently than if you take it by mouth. So it, anyway, so they kept the conversion tables in, but they have all these disclaimers. So what I'm seeing this as is it's, it's still, it's still going to have the same impact, which is when they come out with these recommendations that they've stressed are just loose recommendations, it's going to have the same reaction it had before. The politicians and the insurance companies and the drug you know, pharmacies are going to say, well, this is what the CDC recommends. And it's going to become the rule rather than what they say they intended it for. But because they'll have spent all these paragraphs in the early pages of their guidelines saying, you know, this, we want this to be individualized. We don't want you to use this as, as dogma that covers them. So basically they're going to be for all intents and purposes, they're going to, it's going to have the same effect as the 2016 guidelines, except they hope to make it where they're off the hook when it's misused by policymakers because they, I told you not to do that. Don't, don't yell at me. I told you you're not supposed to do that. So now they're no longer responsible for, for all of the misbehavior that's going to happen when they publish their 2022 guidelines. Yeah, they want to want you don't blame yeah. us. Right. It's, it's interesting, too. So, for example, in, in my state and 35 other states, they passed into loss, basically variations of their guidelines. You know, you can't have more than X amount of pills for uh, uh, after surgery or whatever. And those were guidelines that were written in 2016 and it's 2022. You know, if there's anything anyone should take away from these last two years of the COVID pandemic is that medical science 
our knowledge and understanding of things changes almost on a daily basis. As the information comes in, various really smart people could disagree over what that information means um, and interventions based upon that. Uh, different people respond differently to those interventions. You know, vaccinations work better for some people than for other people, for example. So um, th that's something that everybody should have learned from these last two years. So you would think the last thing you want to do is when you hear uh, on the day that the CDC releases its guidelines, that's a snapshot in time. And to codify that by putting it into law is like the dumbest thing in the world to do. That's like if today... Uh, the CDC comes out and says uh, cloth masks uh, are great. Everybody get a cloth mask. So they pass laws in the state saying you must wear cloth mask. And then two weeks later, they say, actually, cloth masks are worthless. Don't wear cloth masks. Well, what do we do now? We have a law that says everybody has to wear a cloth mask. I guess we have to have a special session of Congress to pass another law to say you don't have to wear a cloth mask. You can't, you can't do science that way. You can't do science through legislation. Science is, is, is fluid. It's, it's a process. It's a learning process. It's not. a. Yeah, no, and regulation is regulation. Even science, there is a back and forth. But with regulation and legislators, when they're making policy, the amount the amount of organization and willpower that has to go through to make uh, a small change is a you know is a lot more. So if they have a, if the science is bad that day, but it's better next week and they make like you're saying, if they make the law based on the bad day, then, then, you've, then you've set yourself some major problems. Now, I have a little bit of egg on my face, I admit, because that document, when they first came out with these um, <clears throat> with these new proposal guidelines, I kind of fell for it a little bit, I'm going to be honest. I feel like I have some egg on my face on this because I, I read those first parts and I didn't really get deep into the notes, the mechanics, and I fell for what they were saying too. One thing I would say that some people have told me that push back I say maybe some people are overblown is that be, just as most of us at least at first missed that they they had actually kept all the underlying mechanics and in some ways are are stricter than last time the 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 parts in bold up top near the front that you know the people who are are <clears throat> in the media or the people who are in legislatures they're not going to do their homework either and so because that stuff is in bold that maybe that will lead some people to make better decisions do you think there's any <laughs> truth to that oh for crying out loud Shh. Uh, sorry do you think there's any truth to that dr singer or uh, is there anything good that you think is coming out of these guidelines the only thing good that's coming out of guidelines is the part where they say don't take these as dogma use just use this information see it for what it's worth and then proceed with your own clinical judgment with what you know about your patient otherwise again it's 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 uh it's it's thinking that you could tell people how to treat a particular disease when you don't know the individual and there's so much variability uh and like i say you 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 could be forgiven for falling for some of it because i i would uh post postulate that Many doctors, if they don't know much, or they forgot a lot of their pharmacology that they learned in medical school, and they don't work in that area that much, they may have accepted these conversion tables as, well, the CDC says this is a conversion table, so I guess I'll follow the CDC's conversion table. Uh, it, it was the pharmacologists and biochemists who said, wait a minute, you can't, you can't have it. There's no way you can equate 
one drug to another drug, but because that's kind of really specialized knowledge. And then, of course, the other detective workers that the, which just recently came out, like we talked about in the Daily News today, is that they were not only that, they were cobbled together by subjective studies that were done in the past. So it wasn't even, you know, objective kind of science. But, but um, otherwise, I really, first of all, I don't know what the CDC is doing, getting involved and telling you how to treat things. The CDC was supposed to set up, it was supposed to be set up to monitor epidemics, uh, infectious diseases, and, and, and tell you how to avoid this, this control and, and avoid the spread of disease. Uh, I'm not in favor of agencies telling, telling us how to live our lives to begin with, but if there's gonna be an agency that would be more appropriate for dosing and things like that, it would be the FDA. I mean, usually when you get a package that's of a, on a package that you get of a drug that's FDA approved, it tells you the dose, it tells you what to, you know, there's a package an insert inside saying, you know, don't take if you're using this drug. Anybody's watched these commercials on TV for different pharmaceutical products. You hear all these disclaimers, don't, you know, if you have this, if you have an allergy to, the FDA is the one that deals with this, not the CDC, but you don't, even then they're telling you how this particular drug should be used and what to watch out for. They're not telling you how to treat a, a, a disorder or a condition. They don't tell you how to treat diabetes. They don't tell you how to treat high blood pressure. They tell you this blood pressure medication needs to be used on, uh, in this and this way. And you have to be careful about these drug interactions and these other conditions that could be in your patient if you're going to use this drug. That's all they say. They don't tell you how to treat the patient. But somehow the CDC decided to tell doctors how to treat people with pain. They got no business doing this in the first place. Totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, same, so same way they're also telling people about guns, right, and how to use guns. They're spending money doing research on, on, on gun ownership and whether or not houses have guns safely locked up. Meanwhile, they don't have, they don't have, they're not ready when a COVID pandemic hits because they've been spending all the time on things they shouldn't be involved in. Okay, so here's our last question for you. So, uh, based on your experience and feeling for this this issue, do you have any sense like where we are in in the quest to maybe bringing back um, pain medicine to a more normal place where pain patients and other patients can access pain medicine? Do you think we're we're closer to that, or do you think that's far ahead in the future? I st unfortunately, I think too many people have bought into this narrative that. The only reason we have an overdose crisis is because doctors were too liberal treating pain and hooked a whole bunch of people on drugs. And they think all these people on the street shooting up with opioids. And by the way, they should stop calling them opioids. That's too general a term. They're shooting up with heroin and fentanyl. They're not shooting up with oxycodone. They're not shooting up with Vicodin. They're, shoot, they're shooting up with 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 heroin and fentanyl mainly. And, and they're also using cocaine and methamphetamine mixed with heroin and fentanyl. So all these people, they believe, are the product of you know, healthy, happy people who came into a doctor's office with a broken wrist and a doctor gave them a painkiller and may, turned them into that. That's total fantasy. But until they overcome that and disabuse themselves of it, they're, they, it's, an avoiding, it's avoiding the real culprit of the overdose crisis, which is prohibition which makes non-medical use of drugs, which people are always going to engage in, it makes it more dangerous. And um, I, I, so I'm not terribly optimistic in the short term. There's one area where I am getting optimistic, which is the United States has lagged behind much of the developed world 
when it comes to embracing harm reduction because they're, they're too puritanical. They're saying, I don't want to help somebody, enable somebody do something evil, which is recreational drug use. Uh, whereas the rest of the world has much lower overdose rates because they have been actively engaging in things like needle exchange programs, safe consumption sites, uh, drug safe supply, drug testing. They've been doing that for, for decades. That's why we're, we're, we're an outlier. So it seems to me that more and more politicians from across the ideological spectrum are beginning to kind of throw, you know, raise the white flag on that and say, yeah, maybe, maybe we ought to start using harm reduction. So there's, there's, uh, I think I'm more optimistic when it comes to harm reduction, but I'm not optimistic when it comes to patients in pain. I still think that uh, it's just too easy to blame Purdue Pharma or Johnson and Johnson or any of these drug companies that 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 made prescription pain pills. It's too easy to blame them, and 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 avoid having to blame prohibition. They don't want to blame prohibition. Uh, I. You may be right on that. I, I, I think you're right on harm reduction. I hope you're wrong on the pain <laughs> medicine front. I hope, I hope Sandy comes back sooner than uh, we think it might. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, it was a pleasure to be able to meet with you here today on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Um, if you would like to follow Dr. Singer on Twitter, he is at Dr. Four, the, the number four, Liberty. Um, and of course, you can follow all his work at the Cato Institute. He's also a frequent writer, so you can find him at different news sites like his brand, Spanking New. He mentioned an article in the New York Daily News. Well, Dr. Singer, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm, we'll have to have you on again. Um, and to all of those that have watched, thank you so much for your time. I hope you learned a lot about these issues and are willing to keep an open mind. I know harm reduction for some more of my right-wing listeners is a, a little bit of a hard concept to fathom but i hope uh dr singer made a pretty good case for maybe that why that should be considered and until next time my friends take care and have a good night thank you for listening to the happy warrior podcast intro and outro narrated by nicole carino music by o wires if you like what you hear today, please go to thehappywarrior.substack.com and subscribe. Be sure to follow us at happywarriorp on Twitter. Email is happywarriorp at protonmail.com. 